15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, bringing you this week some news from the United States, from Myanmar, from Brazil, from Turkey, and a see you in hell that's dead fascist from Nazi Germany. From the United States, we have, you know, your typical weekly news roundup of news stories coming out of the aftermath of January 6th attempted coup from earlier this year. Uh, the most interesting piece of information here is that uh, a, an attendee of the coup has flipped. Uh, he's going to talk to the feds. He's going to talk to the federal government, testify against specifically the Proud Boys uh, and also some members of Patriot Front uh, and some other militia organizations. This will enable the federal government to create like much higher charges uh, against the leaders of these national organizations, which is actually an extremely big deal. This is the first known flip or defection uh, for the people who plotted the coup, for the people who participated in the coup, the first clear willingness on their part to testify against each other. Uh, So it looks like at some point somebody out there is going to lose the game of Prisoner's Dilemma, and let's hope that it is the national leaders of the Proud Boys. Some other news coming out of the DOJ, this is not about January 6th in particular, uh, is that the leader or the former leader of the neo-Nazi paramilitary organization that was trying to create a series of dirty bombs in the United States, this organization is called Atomwaffen, has pled guilty uh, to hate crimes and conspiracy theory activity uh, against journalists who expose anti-Semitism. So the Department of Justice has said that this former leader of this former neo-Nazi paramilitary organization has pled guilty and is therefore up for at least 15 years in prison, uh, which is good news if you hate fascists and hate uh, fascists who attempt to, you know, set off radioactive bombs in various parts of the United States. One of their plans, for example, was to set off a bomb in Times Square. Um, There were plans to do similar things in various public transit networks throughout the country. So the fact that Atomwaffen has been dismantled, at least as far as we can tell, uh, and that its leaders are going to be prevented from doing any kind of political organizing outside of prison, this is extremely good news. Also in the news regarding fascism and retaliations against fascism, the Oregon Public Broadcasting Network is reporting uh, that the police in Portland, uh, who killed Michael Reinald, uh, are talking about you know the circumstances in which they killed him. Uh, for those of you who have forgotten, uh, Reinald was a leftist protester, uh, a self-avowed member of Antifa, who killed a Trump supporter uh, in an altercation uh, in the summer during the various urban insurrections in the United States during 2020. Um, he was wanted uh, for killing this Trump supporter uh, less than a week prior. Um, but the cops on the scene, instead of doing anything at all, uh, just um, they just jumped out of their cars and shot him. Uh, These police had been deputized by federal agents at the time, by federal agencies, uh, to retaliate against uh, Reinald's attack. Um, And what we have now is that, you know, the police are following the reports. They're talking about exactly how this violence went down. uh, And what they're talking about is, you know, chaos and just like, uh, general snafus on the site of their killing of Reinald, uh, that their radios weren't functioning with each other, uh, that people just jumped out of the car, guns blazing, uh, that nobody talked to Reinald, that nobody attempted to, you know, tell him to, you know, lie down on the ground or do anything like that. Uh, and also none of them at all, uh, are reporting that Reinald was armed or behaving in any kind of, you know, offensive or aggressive manner, 
uh, on the scene of their killing of him, which is in direct contradiction to what they said the day of. Now, for those of you who cover or, you know, follow or are familiar with police violence, that's not surprising uh, that their story has changed uh, now that time has passed. Um, but this is extremely interesting because Reinald is uh, one of the few examples that we know for sure uh, in the past several years in which a left-wing uh, political actor did kill a right-wing political actor. Uh, Reinald was pretty transparent about the fact that he was involved in that violence. Um, and so the fact that this story is getting new information and that the police are being a little bit more transparent about how they just they just ran out and shot him in retaliation um, is pretty interesting. Uh, and it's especially interesting in direct contrast with what happened to uh, the most famous right-wing perpetrator of just like explicitly political violence back in 2020. This is Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, who murdered two people in Kenosha last year. Um, he, of course, was treated with some serious kid gloves by the police. Just he walked straight towards them with an AR and they just let him go. And finally, in the United States, we have uh, increasing just brazen calls by the conservative intellectual world, uh, just, just trying to justify the fact that the Republicans' only real viable electoral strategy going forward for the next several years is going to be uh, reducing turnout, is going to be reducing suffrage. Uh, this is a major story, a major op-ed in the National Review, it's, a, it's, mo its most viewed story this week, was just saying that having fewer voters would be good. Uh, that that a lot of people should be disenfranchised. Uh, specifically, the article calls for effectively permanent disenfranchisement uh, for convicted felons, uh, which is something that is the case in many states in the United States today. Um, however, many states are also overturning those laws and allowing people who are convicted of felonies to return to the voting rolls. Um, the Republicans are noting that they, you know, maybe they do actually just want to restrict voters. Uh, they just want there to be fewer voters. Outside the United States, we have continued and unfortunately just, it seems, continuous violence uh, in the nation of Myanmar, uh, where the government's uh, violent response to protesters who have been protesting the military coup that took place in that country last month um, have escalated. Uh, the military uh, has killed children um, in their retaliations against uh, the protesters and are, of course, denying that they are responsible for this particular kind of violence. In Brazil, we have Jair Bolsonaro, the president, uh, who's just very transparently doubling down on a sort of who cares Trumpian approach uh, to COVID. Uh, Bolsonaro and Brazil in general have had arguably the second worst response to the pandemic uh, compared to the former president of the United States' response to the pandemic, Donald Trump. Um, Bolsonaro's Brazil has seen its deadliest day in the pandemic just this week. That's that's yesterday, uh, Thursday. Um, and he doesn't seem to care. He doesn't seem to want to do anything. Uh, this is in contrast to his previous strategies, uh, which were really mollifying the populace by providing a universal basic income uh, a provision for people during the pandemic, for people who had you know, lost their livelihoods or who weren't able to go out to work. Um, those provisions have ended. Uh, as I noted last week, Bolsonaro is also obviously increasingly worried about the potential candidacy of, you know, his worst political nightmare, uh, that Lula de Silva will be able to come back um, and run against him again in the upcoming Brazilian presidential election, uh, an election that if he's facing Lula, uh, Bolsonaro will probably lose. We have to be worried about uh, a potential for him to actually try to pull some illegal stuff. Um, 
not necessarily a coup, but, you know, things like voter suppression, voter fraud, uh, things like that, up to and including possibly an actual coup. And speaking of coups and speaking of right wing authoritarians who either threaten or perceive themselves to be threatened by coups, uh, we have news of Erdogan, uh, the president of Turkey, uh, has been moving against uh, over a dozen retired naval officers, uh, including several admirals, uh, for their opposition to his plans for a new canal uh, in the Istanbul region. Uh, now, this might seem like a small, um, you know, like a small piece of news, but the fact that he's moving against, you know, retired military admirals, retired generals, uh, and the fact that he's doing so because he's saying that their opposition to his plan amounts to military involvement in the government amounts to a possible coup. Uh, this indicates that he's worried. You know, he's concerned about his position. He's concerned uh, about the support that the military might have in his country. Um, and he's concerned about the stability of his regime. You know, he's worried that they might actually provide some sort of threatening base. Or he's trying to show that he is, in fact, still um, the actual authority in the country, you know, that 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 he can make the sorts of decisions uh, that he's making, that he can just decide how the government, how the country is going to be run. And speaking of coups, authoritarianism, and, you know, opposition to democracy in general, uh, we have a very thematically appropriate dead fascist this week. Uh, this is See You in Hell, a segment that celebrates the deaths of right-wing figures in history. This week, we are going to Nazi Germany. We're talking about a guy named Carl Schmitt. Now, Schmitt is the most important Nazi intellectual. Uh, arguably, he is the Nazi intellectual. Uh, he was born in 1888 in the German Empire, uh, joined the German military in World War I as a soldier. Um, and then after he left the military, he went back to university uh, to study law and political theory. Uh, he was an extremely successful student and had an academic career from basically from that point, from the conclusion of World War I uh, up until the conclusion of World War II. Uh, he was primarily a theorist of the extremes of state power, uh, about authority and the rule of the mighty and sovereignty in general. Uh, he was the leader of various legal processes and publications for the Nazis uh, when they took power in 1933. Uh, the most important of these is an op-ed, you know, an, an opinion piece that he wrote in a major legal journal in Berlin uh, that was the justification, the real legal political justification for the Night of the Long Knives, uh, which is a series of killings that the newly elected, that the newly successful Nazi party uh, perpetrated against its against members, against the members of the Nazi party. Uh, this was uh, Hitler shoring up power within the organization. Uh, and the, the piece that Schmidt wrote to justify this is called uh, The Leader Protects the Law, uh, which is the theme, the theme of Karl Schmidt's work. Uh, eventually, uh, later in the course of the Nazi regime, uh, Karl Schmidt would be investigated by the SS uh, for being a fake anti-Semite and for other sort of ideological thought crime problems. Uh, he was eventually protected by Joseph Goebbels, one of the most important Nazis, uh, from actual persecution and prosecution for this. Uh, but he was effectively politically sidelined at this point uh, from direct involvement in Nazi policymaking. After the war, he was imprisoned by the Allies in 1945 and kept in a prison camp for about a year or so, and after that was released, uh, facing no serious legal consequences for his involvement with the Nazi regime and for his Nazi party membership, like many Germans. Um, uh, but he was effectively at that point out 
of the political and academic world. He didn't hold academic positions after that. Uh, he retired back to his home village, um, engaging with the political world by, you know, writing opinion pieces, by writing articles, by writing books, and giving the occasional lecture series. Uh, most notably, he traveled to Franco, Spain, uh, where his daughter had married a, Fra a Franquista sort of uh, operative uh, local important person. The important thing about Schmidt isn't necessarily his own personal life, uh, but his intellectual output. Because as a theorist of political authority and of sovereignty in particular, he was extremely influential uh, on many thinkers on the right and on the left. Uh, the main things that he focused on is uh, something called a state of exception, which, you know, gives the title of this particular episode of the podcast. A state of exception is a political theory term that defines when a political authority says, you know, like, you know, we're in an exceptional time. Uh, the normal rules no longer apply now. Uh, and Schmidt's claim is that the basis, the definition of political sovereignty is the ability to declare a state of exception, uh, that that is what power is is the ability to suspend the normal rules of society, to, dis to suspend the rule of law. Uh, other important parts of Schmidt's ideology uh, include defining politics, the political as such, uh, as essentially determining the distinction between friend and foe, between ally and enemy, and that this uh, distinction between ally and enemy is a justification uh, for total war and for domestic suppression um, against basically anybody in the country. Uh, and for those of you who have been listening to this podcast or are paying attention to the right wing in general, this distinction is incredibly important to the right um, because it means that those who are its opposition, uh, those who are the right wing's enemies, uh, can be subject to any kind of violence, any kind of persecution, any kind of suppression uh, in the name of the law, in the name of the authority, in the name of power. Um, Schmidt has been deeply influential uh, for critiques of liberal democratic order, uh, that come both from the left or right, from actual Nazis uh, to many post-Marxists, including Chantal Mouffe, uh, Ernesto Leclau, uh, and a series of other post-Marxists that um, rise to prominence in the European intellectual circles of the 1980s, 90s, and early 2000s. Now, Schmidt himself was not a killer. Uh, he's not directly responsible for people's deaths, uh, you know, except potentially as a soldier in World War I. But as an intellectual, his beliefs have provided legal, ideological, political justification for all sorts of disgusting regimes and disgusting political practices um, up to, you know, and including the way that the Nazis behaved in Germany and in occupied territories in Europe um, to being connected to political justifications for, say, uh, the Pinochet regime in Chile uh, up to and including the state of exception that is currently in operation in Myanmar, you know, when the military staged its coup, they said, hey, this is a, quote, political emergency. We are taking emergency powers. Schmidt's ideology is at the heart of that political justification. So Carl Schmidt, uh, who died this week in history, April 7th, 1985, we will see you in hell. That was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm still Craig Johnson. Uh, I'm thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. And if you found this podcast useful, informational, educational, please share it with friends, family, and comrades. And if you found it especially useful, helpful, or politicizing, uh, please check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 Minutes of Fascism. That's 15 Minutes of Fascism, all one word. And finally, this week, I have a big announcement. I guess it's not that big, but it's big for me. Uh, I'm changing the release 
dates of the podcast. Uh, instead of coming out on Fridays, uh, we're going to be coming out on Thursday mornings. It's still weekly. Uh, just check out the podcast released on Thursday mornings. All right. I will see you next Thursday. <laughs>